Guys, I, I'm really already looking forward to next year's uh, study, next fall study in the Minor Prophets. You say, Minor Prophets? Why would I say a Minor Prophets? Can't even name them. That's your problem, you see. And uh, I, early, many years ago, after I became a Christian, for some reason, I got introduced to the Minor Prophets. Uh, they, those are the ones starting with Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on. And uh, found that they're just rich with practical advice for daily living and a view of God that we all very badly need in our, in our lives. And I've always been a great fan of the Minor Prophets, and I can't wait to get into it with you. The next fall, 06, we're going to be dealing with, uh, with uh, the Gospel of Mark. So we'll get back to something a little bit more familiar to most people. But uh, I think you'll find next fall, if you join us, that it's going to be a really, really great study. I'm so glad that Don Riley is suggesting these small groups. Let me tell you one thing that you could do that might not be too difficult for you to arrange. Uh, next fall, what I'm going to do is I'm going to email to anybody who wants them on Thursday mornings some small group study questions. So if you want your small group to be based on the study in the Minor Prophets, for example, you could just meet for Thursday lunch, and at lunch have some questions that you go through based on the study that we just had in the Minor Prophets. Now, of course, studying that much material, you realize that you know, in my Bible, I think Revelation consists of about 16 pages or something. In my Bible, minor prophets going to take a lot more pages than that. So we're going to be moving over more material more rapidly, and there's going to be a lot, a lot of opportunity for interaction, small groups to discuss aspects of of each of those books that we wouldn't have had time to cover in here. So what I'd be willing to do, if you want to develop a group, whether it meets on Thursday at lunch or not, is ju- just let us know, and we'll we'll handle this in the fall, and we'll just take your email addresses, and then we'll just blast out an email uh, with those study questions right after Amen for those of you who want to use them. But that's something you might consider. Uh, we really like having amen the way it is. You can come in here. You don't have to talk to anybody. You can just grunt if you want to and then walk out the door. You know, After all, it's 6.30 in the morning. You shouldn't have to be required to talk to anybody you don't want to. And amen structured that way so you don't have to say anything to anybody if you don't want to. Uh, now, that, it's hard to get by with that when you come in this room because everybody you know, is greeting each other. But uh, you just feel free to grunt and go home. Uh, but by noontime, we expect you to start opening your mouth and start thinking by noon. So, uh, we, you know, if you'd like to be involved in those uh, small group studies, and maybe more than four people, uh, just, just let us know, and we'll be glad to give you those questions next fall. So we look forward to that. We know this summer is also going to be good, uh, and I really appreciate Rocky and Chuck, and they're filling in a couple of times, or more than a couple of times, and I've been away, and I know they've just done an outstanding job. So many of you have told me. And uh, Dan Patterson, we thank you for your leadership this year. It's just been absolutely wonderful. And Robert Sutton, uh, you, you're singing just a little bit higher key after you got married, but you still were close enough that we could follow you. <laughs> and uh, Jay Cox over here on the piano, we really appreciate Jay. And then the, the ladies back there on the, in the kitchen. And just so many of you behind the scenes that are on the Amen team that make this thing happen. I've told our team before, it's just great for me because I walk in here at 629.5 or whatever. And uh, everything's done, uh, and I'm just always amazed. Uh, Don said that we started off with 500 and went to 350. I'm just amazed. I thought we'd have lost 350 and be left with 150 studying the book of Revelation. And I want to commend you for hanging in there. Uh, some of you have been here almost every one of these lessons. And I, I thought about uh, developing a little amen graduation certificate for you. I mean, you really deserve it, you know what I mean? It'd say something like this, amen hereby proclaims, that this student has completed 34 lectures on the difficult book of Revelation. After all these studies and many hours of discussion, this student knows no more about Revelation than he ever knew before. (laughs) (laughs) And believe me, whatever you know, you're going to forget about next fall anyway. But uh, hopefully uh, you will be left with something. And hopefully, as you've studied the book of Revelation, some good things have happened in your own understanding about God who he is, his plan for us, and uh, your own hope has been increased uh, as to God's love for you and his prospects for you. Uh, He has plans for you, not plans to harm you, but plans to give you hope in the future. And I think Revelation makes that very clear. As a matter of fact, I'd like for us to start off this morning by asking my favorite question. (laughs) So let's start with so what. And let's think about, through our study of Revelation, what's happened. By the way, uh, this is not in your... Uh, handout, but in the back of your handout, you do this time, since this is the last amen, and you won't be getting notes from this one, uh, you have a little fill-in outline if you want to use it. 
This part is not on there. You don't need to record this anyway. I just want to go through some things that remind us what should we have gotten out of our study of Revelation. If you didn't, this is what we should have gotten. First of all, we simply want to reclaim this book of the Bible so that we have it in our functional canon. It is in the canon of the Bible. It's part of God's Word. But so often among men, it doesn't really function as such because we're afraid of it. It's so complex. And we've seen why we're afraid of it. It is complex. It's, it's a, not an easy book to understand. And yet it's a book that over and over again in Revelation, we are told how, how important it is to realize this is the Word of God. Don't tamper with it. And one of the most popular, popular ways in which men tamper with the book of Revelation is that they ignore it. And, and that's really tampering with the Revelation because if we're to be the men of the book, if we're to know the Word of God and we, we, we just ignore it, uh, then we are not taking it as part of our functional canon. Secondly, we have renewed our vision of Jesus Christ. And starting with Revelation chapter 1, this is really about Jesus Christ. This book has been to tell us how great He is in all of His ascended and exalted glory. Thirdly, we saw the church as Jesus sees her. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes painful to do. If you look at your own life the way it really is, or your own family the way it really is, or your own time management, or your own money management the way it is, it can be very painful. And it can be painful to look at the church. And when you look at chapters 2 and 3, it's painful to see that all that lukewarmness, for example, God sees it all and He says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You're making me sick. I'm going, to, I'm going to puke. And so we've seen the church in all of her illness and, and dis-ease the way that Jesus sees her. And actually, that makes us appreciate His love for us all the more because we know that by nature, when He looks at us, He sees one thing, but by grace, He sees us as His bride. It has excited our worship because we've seen as we opened Revelation chapter 4 that there's another world. It's heaven. And these things are going on. And right now the most important thing going on in the cosmos is what's going on in heaven. And that is the eternal praise of the living God through Jesus Christ who is on the throne with the Father at His right hand. And so we've seen how important it is that we be worshipers. That we be men who live in this life in view of the realities of heaven. And that means then that our first priority here will be the same as the first priority there. So we'll be worshiping men, and we've understood how important this is. We've expanded our worldview to include God and heaven. You know, sometimes some of you have, a, have an Eeyore personality. Oh, it's a very bad day. Well, it'll probably get worse, you know. And that kind of mentality where everything seems miserable, all we can see is from here down, and uh, we've got our head down most of the time. And we've seen that men who know their God, or men who have to lift up their heads and realize there's much more to reality than just what I'm experiencing in my body or what I can see with my eyes. There's something I see by faith because it's revealed in the Word of God. And therefore, I know that God is in charge. And my worldview is going to be a world over which God is enthroned. He owns it. He's controlling it. I'm His servant. And He's bringing this all to a happy conclusion. And I refuse to have anybody rob that from me, no matter what happens to my psyche or to my body or to my family or anything else. So we've had our worldview expanded by including God in heaven. We have been encouraged to persevere in our faith. And we've seen that in the context in which John wrote this and to which he wrote it, he was speaking to people like ourselves who were under great duress, who were being persecuted by the political authorities of their own day, who were marginalized in society, who were losing their jobs, who were being uh, put out of the professional guilds so they couldn't even do trade because they were Christian believers. They refused to worship the gods of Rome. So we've seen that the revelation was given to a people who needed to have their imaginations in, uh, put to flame, who needed to have a, a, a vision of things that was much bigger than just their own misery. And of course, John was in misery. He was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, away from his people, away from the people that he had known for decades and whom he was pastoring. So we were, we're encouraged, just like they, to persevere in our faith. Don't give up because of the message of Revelation. We saw how evil evil is, like beasts coming out of the earth and beasts out of the sea and like a harlot on a, 
on a beast. And ugly, terrible. And we've seen that that's what evil really is to us. When it's alluring us, it can look very beautiful. But we find that it's really a very grotesque whore that's simply trying to entice us into her destructive world. We saw how evil evil is. We have renewed our confidence in providence. That is that we're not in control. He is in control. And He orders whatsoever comes to pass. He is high and lifted up. He controls all that is in history. Of course, we are still making decisions in view of our own motives, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, whoever we are. Human beings make decisions in view of their own motives. So we are free moral agents. At the same time, here's the mystery of providence. At the same time, God is controlling whatsoever comes to pass. He is enthroned over the heavens and over the earth. And we've renewed our confidence that this, God, this earth has a governor. It has a ruler. It has a master. And he is ruling through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been emboldened in our witness. If these things are true, if God is sovereign ruler over the universe, and if he's going to judge good and evil, if he's going to judge those who are following him and those who are not, then it is of the utmost importance that we get the message out. And we are told that whether it kills us, whether we live or whether we die, we are to be the martyrs. The word just means witness. We are to be the witnesses in this world, even at the expense of our own lives. So let's get on with it. We are emboldened in our witness. We've had our hope in heaven renewed. I hope. I hope you have. The sure and certain hope of the Scripture is not like I just said, I hope you have. When I say I hope you have, I'm not sure if you have or not. I hope you have. But the hope of the Bible is sure. The hope of the return of Jesus Christ is not in question. He is coming back. And He is going to give His people eternal rest. And the hope that we have is not in doubt. It is a sure and a certain hope. And so we've had that hope, which is a gift to us from God, renewed in us as we look at the book of Revelation. This is the reason that Revelation needs to be a continuing part of your canon, your functional canon. Your devotions need to be in Revelation as well as other parts of the Bible. Your Sunday school classes need to deal with Revelation as well as other parts of the Bible. Why? Because it renews your hope. What happens when your hope is renewed? The Apostle John said that we, live, we are purified as we renew our hope. He says this in 1 John chapter 3. You can look at it. When he speaks about our seeing Jesus as He is, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope, he says, purifies himself. So as we look at heaven and look at Christ and get our focus on the future, He sanctifies us through hoping in Christ. So it's very, very important. And then, of course, as we hope for heaven, we find our own spirits being lifted up. We find ourselves more useful in life. And so we'll be done with the Eeyore approach to life because we know where we're going. So we've renewed our hope in heaven. We've renewed our eagerness for Christ's return. I, I hope you have. Because what we've seen is that when He returns, if you listen last week to this beautiful city, and the beautiful person you're going to be and the beautiful relationships that we're going to have. I mean, what a place. And if you have any smidgen of a belief in what was expounded for us last week, then you know this is something to look forward to. And I've told you before, I'm convinced that God only gives us what He gives us and doesn't give us any more because it, probably we would commit suicide if, if, if we had more than we, than we have. Or if He enlightened our minds to understand more. We'd be so eager to get there, we just wouldn't be a bold witness in this life, which is what we're supposed to do. So we have a short season, that is this life, to be a representative of His on this earth and be a bold witness for Him to get the Word out to those who need to hear it. But it's a very short period of time. The eternal life that we have is going to be in His presence in that glorified city of the New Jerusalem. And we're eager for His return. We have seen that there are certain things that can get between us and that return. Maybe we're enjoying something in this life and we don't want it to end. Maybe we want want to see our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren. And we've seen in our studies this year that if there's anything that's keeping you from desiring to be in heaven for your own sake, you've made a God out of that thing you're enjoying in this life. Let me say that again. If there's anything in this life that makes you not want to get to heaven right away, you just made a God 
out of something in this life. That is, you desire it more than you desire to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's tough. I know. Look, I hope to see a lot of grandchildren in my family. <laughs> I, I, I admit it. It's, it's enjoyable, but I had to cultivate a desire for Christ which exceeds that. So as much as I love my children, I want to see their weddings, I want to see their grandchildren, much as I desire all that, uh, I must cultivate a desire for Christ which exceeds it all. And then I really can enjoy and minister to those that I love in this, in this life. Now, the Apostle Paul said, as far as I'm concerned, I would rather depart and be with Christ. But for your sake, I know I shall stay. So it's okay to cultivate wanting to stay, to serve somebody. But not to get satisfaction out of them, but rather to give them satisfaction through your ministry, your love, or your care for them. So you see the distinction. And we've seen then that with that qualification, we are to be eager for the return of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we've been reminded of God's love for His people. What, an, what a wild story of God's love for us. You see in chapters 2 and 3 what He really sees when He looks in, the, in our churches. And he, he, could, you know, he listed seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. I don't know how many churches we have represented here, probably 25 or so. And he could go through all those churches. And, he could, and if we saw what he really sees, it, it wouldn't be a pretty picture. But then you get to the end of this and you see what he, what he really sees. He sees our future. The future that is purchased because of his love for us, not because we deserve it. He's making us something absolutely glorious. And what we've seen is his love for his church and his love for individual men like you. And if he looked in your life and took an inventory, what, what list would pop out? None of us would want it projected up on this screen. But the list that he really sees is the list he purchased by the blood of his own son and by the work of his own spirit. He's made us something absolutely beautiful. And that's the way he sees us now when we put our trust in Christ. It's all because of love. There's no other explanation for it. It's because he loves. And you ask, why does he love me? Because he loves you. There's no explanation for it. And because there is no explanation for it outside of his own character, then there's nothing that can take it away. If there was some reason that he loved you, as soon as you stopped being that way, he'd stop loving you. But since there's no reason in you that he loves you, it's all in him, you can be assured that love is not going to be taken away. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. So we've seen that in a big way in Revelation. Now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 22, the last verses of this book. I'm glad we got no standing ovation there. It's a little encouraging. Let's look at <laughs> yeah, some poor guy. His wife's been making him come every week. and he's just, <laughs> <laughs> Some of you have wives who kick you out of bed about 530 in the morning, you know. They just, uh, they're just glad to have you out of the house, I think. Okay, let's look at Revelation 22, verse 6. And, of course, this follows on the New Jerusalem. And uh, all of the blessings of being in that great city. Now let's see what happens here. Verse 6. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is He who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. 
I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Okay, verse 6. He basically is telling us this book is true. It is trustworthy. It is true. These are two words that are related but have different slants of meaning. Trustworthy, Trustworthy, that is, you can lean on it. It will hold you up. You can bank your life on it. And gentlemen, I suggest you do that. Put your trust in the truth of this book. Lean on it. Trust in it. Build your life on it. Secondly, it's true. It's accurate. It's telling you what is, what was, and what's going to be. And it tells you it's going to happen soon when Jesus Christ returns. And how do we know? Because the angel said it. And you get this from the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1 where we're told that God has sent an angel to communicate these things. He has sent us a special messenger. We have it through the words of the apostle, who got it from an angel, who got it from Christ, who got it from God. Because ultimately, God's the one who sent the angel. And you can see this often often happens with revelations of God. You find it in the Old Testament as well. When we studied Exodus, when we studied Genesis, we saw that God sends angels to communicate to us. The word angel means messenger. So God sends His own messengers. And apostles, in a certain sense, are angels. And we saw that, didn't we, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that each of the churches had an angel. Whether it was a human angel, human messenger, or a heavenly angel, heavenly messenger, we don't know. But God is speaking in such a way that it comes to us faithfully, comes to us accurately. And so you can study all the courses and higher criticism you want to and all the courses that seek to show why the Bible is really not authoritative and why the apostles didn't write it. Why do you think, from the perspective, the destructive point of view, why do you think that unbelievers would like to prove that apostles didn't write the New Testament? Because the apostles were God's appointed angels or human messengers. So if you can prove that there's corruption in who sent you the message, then, of course, you have a right to question whether the message is accurate. But here's what God is saying. The angel came to you and spoke. And I'm the one who sent the angel. And so you better believe it. Revelation is the Word of God. It's given to us from the Apostle. Now, you, of course, know that text, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's what Scripture is. It's God speaking or God just breathing it out. It's God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. So it's useful, all Scripture. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, we see that it is God who carried along their prophets. They didn't speak on their own account. Uh, Peter says that the prophets spoke by the power of God's Spirit. God spoke through them. So prophets and apostles were the designated means through which God has spoken, whether it's a heavenly angel or a human angel. God is the one who's speaking through them. And some people say, you know, I just don't know if I can trust that. Well, let me ask you, how do you expect God to speak to you? I had a guy one time, I was, uh, I'd become a Christian for about a year, and, and one of my customers at dinner said, you know, you're getting to be a religious person. I said, well, you know, I think I guess you're right. And, uh, you know, uh, you don't like to be described that way. But that's, you know, that was his way of saying you're a Christian. So, yeah, okay, I'm one of those. So we, go, we came out of the restaurant that night, and he says, now, Sandy, <clears throat> if God wants to speak to me, he can just put up there in the sky Don, I want you. He could just write it right up there. So, okay, I guess he could. God could do that. But God's done this. And, of course, I said to him, you know what, Don? He has written in the sky. Where do you think those stars came from? What do you think the purpose of those stars is? He's telling you that he wants you. He's telling you that he made you. (laughs) So, I mean, it is written in the sky in one sense. So we know that 
creation is also a message from God. You can see his handiwork, and it immediately implies a creator. But in this case, he's spoken to us by words, verbal communication. Give us the story of redemption, and revelation is trustworthy and true. That's what's being said here in verse 6. Verse 7, revelation directs us to Jesus Christ. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. So you want to know, he, first of all, he says, look, I'm talking to you. I'm communicating with you. And he says, here's my message. Look to my son who is coming soon. So if you want to know what the big deal is, you'll find it is that he's coming. And you see this in verse 12. Look, it's not only verse 7. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, yes, I'm coming soon. You think he's making a point? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you look at the book of Revelation, just remember the big deal is Jesus. That's the big deal. And if you just keep Him at the center point of your thinking, keep Him as your interpretive grid as you go through Revelation, you'll be getting the main point. And He's coming back soon. We've seen this with all the different interpretations. You know, we looked at all the different hermeneutical frameworks, the four hermeneutical frameworks, whether you're a futurist, a historist, historicist, or a preterist, uh, or an idealist. We looked at the four millennial views, whether you're a pre-trib, post-pre-mill, uh, or uh, post-trib, pre-mill, or ah-mill, or post-mill, or pan-mill, or whatever the heck you are. Uh, the big deal is, Jesus Christ is coming back. You better get ready. <laughs> so, And we've seen that regardless of all these other debates, that's what we want to focus on. That's exactly what's being said here as John closes out his book. He's saying, remember, three times, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And that has tremendous implications for how we live. You want to live your life in view of His coming soon. You want to live your life so that if He comes before noon today, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing when He comes soon. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was asked, if you knew that Jesus Christ were coming at the end of the day, what would you do? And he said, plant an oak tree. Live life responsibly is what he's saying. You ought to be living your life in such a way you're ready for Him to come at any moment. If you're not ready for Him to come right this minute, then change what you're doing. It's just that simple because He will come as a thief in the night. You've been given the only warning you're going to be given before the trumpet blows. This is it. So we're all warned. So let's live in view of it. And that is what makes the Christian life distinctive. It's always on the edge. It's always with anticipation. And this hope purifies us. That's what John says in his first epistle. Thirdly, when you get to the second half of verse 7, Jesus Christ then directs us back to Revelation. He says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. So, okay, Revelation is pointing you to Jesus, and Jesus is pointing you back to Revelation. The Bible points you to God, and God points you back to the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is His voice. And so His voice directs you to worship Him and to serve Him, and then He directs you back to His Bible to get more instruction for, for the fulfillment of your life for the direction of your life. So let the Bible take you to God and let God take you back to the Bible. Do you see how even in your most subjective experience, when you're laying your life out in praise and worship, that it's always regulated by the objective? That it's, it's both subjective and objective at the same time and in every way. So the, the Bible will lead you to a relationship and the relationship will lead you back to the book. It's back and forth, back and forth all the time. Objective, subjective. Relational, principial. All the time. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's almost like Jesus and the Word are talking to each other. And, of course, we find out that the same thing because you have the Word written and the Word incarnate. It's the Word of God. And God has inspired it. So, Jesus Christ directs us back to Revelation. Well, then, what does Revelation do? Well, Revelation directs us to worship God, you'll see in verses 8 and 9. What What happens? This has happened already once in chapter 9. You thought what John would have learned. But he, uh, John says, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. And he did that back in chapter 9. Got the same message. The angel said, don't worship me. Now this just shows you how radiant and how explosively beautiful everything in heaven is. 
it's kind of like coming into God's tabernacle and everything just sparkles with the brilliance of His glory. Everything has has borrowed glory from God Himself. And you know, the first being you see, I don't know what that's going to be. I don't, you know, who's going to meet us at the gate? So I don't know who that's going to be. But the first being you see, you're going to be so awestruck, as C.S. Lewis says, you'll be tempted to fall down and worship Him. That's exactly what John did. He worshipped an angel, an apostle worshipped an angel. And the angel corrected it. said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Get up off your feet. <laughs> I'm not the source of all this glory. But you're going to be so glorious that people who get there after you do will be tempted to worship you because you have borrowed radiance from the King of Kings. So, once again, we are taught that we are to be worshipers of God alone. Gentlemen, that is the reason that you must be in touch with everything in your life that tempts to be an idol, that tempts you to value it more than God. And think about it. If, if you're instructed not to bow down before an angel, before a holy heavenly being, how much more should you not bow down before a bank account or bow down before a customer or bow down before a boss or bow down before a new car or a new house or a great vacation? Forget all that crap. It cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us when we are brought into His presence. So let's rid ourselves of the idols. That's what's being taught here. John is saying to those who are suffering under the Roman oppressors, don't think for a moment you have to bow down before Caesar. You're going to be the ones who bow down before God alone and the angels are going to bow down before you. So don't be tempted to bow down before human authorities and powers in an inappropriate way. Of course, we bow. We give respect where it's due. We're the ones who submit to the king, to the civil magistrate. We're the ones who submit to authorities, wherever they may be. But we do not worship them. We are not looking to them to give us meaning in life, value in life, significance in life. We will not do that. We have one being who gives us meaning in life. And He gives us all our poor little souls can handle. So, John is taught, don't bow down even before a radiant angel. You're made for the worship of Almighty God. And nothing less will satisfy the soul ultimately. So, Revelation directs us to Christ and directs us to His soul worship. Then fifthly, if you look in verses 10 through 15, this long section, God then, who is being worshipped, directs us back to the day of judgment. And He says, okay, you're worshipping Me. You're relating to Me. Let me just tell you about a very important day that you need to have in view. Let me tell you about the conclusion of all things. Now, you see in verse 10, first of all, uh, this this phrase, do not seal up the words. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book. Now, this is taken from Daniel chapter 12. If you remember Daniel chapter 12, I think it's verse 4, somewhere in there. Uh, Daniel is told, seal up the words of this prophecy until the end time. What does that mean? It means hang on to this word. It's not for immediate application. But when the end time comes, in this case it would have been about four, you know, almost 500 years later, when the end time comes, then you can unseal this prophecy. In other words, it will be true then. So Daniel is told, in his case, told about the revelation to come, which of course will be fulfilled in Christ. Seal it up. Hang on to it. Put it in the library. And, and remember it. But now here. John is told, don't seal it up. Why? He says right here, because the time is near. Don't seal it up. You're in the last days right now. They were inaugurated when Jesus Christ came to this earth. And then he ascended into heaven. The last days have begun. The days of Revelation 4 through 19, we're in. God is sovereign over this broken world. He is bringing it to conclusion. We're right on the precipice. So get out there and live on the precipice because that's exactly where you are. It is nighttime, but it's dawn. Just like when you come to Amen Bible study and you, the sun hasn't come up yet, but you know it's coming soon. That's exactly the way it is right now. It's Amen Bible study. The sun, you can see it. Its rays are starting to come over the circle of the earth. You can't quite see that globe yet, that big fiery sphere, but you can see the rays of light because you can, it's not like pure night. It's just the dawn of the day. First, that's exactly where we live right now. 
Don't seal it up because the morning is coming. The day is almost here. So you see what he's saying? God directs us to the day of judgment. The time is near. Treat it as it is. And so you say it's been 2,000 years. Yeah, I know. 1,000 years is but a day, says Peter. It's been two days. Don't get impatient. A full week hasn't gone by yet. Are you going to forget the Lord? Are you going to say there's no judgment? Are you going to say that God's not a God of justice? It's been two days. Great going, guys. You can last two days. That's the way that the Bible is presenting it to us. He's right on the edge of history, and the time is near. Secondly, he says the choices are clear. Now, this is strange language. Verse 11, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. <laughs> that doesn't look like biblical advice, does it? You know, we know at the end of this book, John, or actually Christ says, don't let anybody tamper with this book or you're going to be in, big, you're going to be in deep weeds. And you, you think, well, if I were going to tamper, that's probably where I'd tamper. Let him who's doing wrong continue to do wrong. What is he saying? There are two ways in which the word let or the idea of let is used in the Scriptures. One is a directive. You know, let us follow Christ. Let us do the will of God. That's a directive. There's another sense in which it's used to say, okay, you want to do wrong? Let them do wrong. There's a sense in which God in His judgment hands us over. It's called judicial hardening. You get it in Romans chapter 1, for example. You get it with Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't going to let the people go because he hardened his own heart. And God says to Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. Which is it? It's both. Pharaoh was disobedient, and God said, okay, just be disobedient. Is that a command? No. It's permissively saying, that's the way you're going? Okay, then the judgment will be, that's exactly what you'll be. You will get what you want. And so he's saying here, look, the time is near. People are making their choices. And not to make a choice is to make a choice. So if those want to go ahead and be ignorant, then let them be ignorant. They choose to be ignorant. They don't want to make a choice. Fine, let them not make a choice. They're not making a choice. But Joshua said, after they crossed the River Jordan, the gods of the Amorites are over here. The gods of the Ammonites are over here. Choose this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we shall serve. We shall worship the Lord. So the gods are out there. Everybody's making their choice. Let them make their choice. And God is saying, I will not be manipulated by it. It will not control history. Let them do what they will do, and I will do what I will do. So that's the general spirit of this. It's a hard word. It's basically saying the choices are clear and the choices are being made. And those choices are noticed and recorded and will make a difference at the end of time. Because thirdly, the reward is sure. He says in verse 12, My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. That is scary. That is scary. When I think about all the things I've done, I mean, I go back real early with evil. Evil and I have a close relationship for a long, long time, 54 years worth. And I can go back about 53 years <laughs> think about all the evil I've done. I remember when I was just a teeny little kid living on the farm, so I couldn't have been more than four years old. I remember hiding behind a door with my older brother's toy gun, you know, it had that it was metal toy gun, and my sister comes walking around and I whack her in the back of the head. <laughs> and of course I I got nicely whacked after that, but that's my heart. Whacking people. You know? That's my natural heart. And there are things like that throughout my life, every month, every week, every day of my life, either something I did or something I intended or something I said. And just think about this, 54 times 365. Can anybody calculate that? That's that's just a lot of days, lots of days. Is that going to be put on an overhead screen? (laughs) What's what's going to happen? He's going to reward me for all I've done? Man, I'm going to be brutalized when I get there. Except for one thing. He says the judge is Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. He says the consequences are real. And here are the consequences. There's some people who are washed. I can't explain it. There's no logic to this behind it. It's just that for, God, for reasons that only God knows, He provided a way for all my filthy robes to be washed. And it's by the blood, the sacrifice of His own Son, which, which washes away all the guilt, all the punishment for my sin and leaves me white, clean. 
pure. He sends His Spirit. And by His Spirit, washes my soul and gives me a desire for Him. I can't explain why He did that. There's no reason for it. He's perfectly within His rights as judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and judge all those according to what they have done. Think, think about this. This, this past uh, week, uh, in preparation for my son's wedding in uh, the middle of June, uh, his bride had her wedding pictures taken indoors, and then she had some taken outdoors. And they noticed after she had her photograph taken outdoors that there was a, a little smudge, just a tiny little smudge on her wedding dress, you know, beautiful white wedding dress. I don't know how much those things cost. I'm the father of the groom. I don't know how much that costs, but I know it's a lot. And so it's got a smudge on it. And so, you know, every woman who's has anything to do with that wedding dress, of course, goes into hyperdrive. And how are we going to get the smudge off the white wedding dress? My wife offers to help. Uh, and she calls about six or seven people in the cleaning business. And nobody will touch it because they're afraid they're going to make it worse. How do you get a little smudge off a wedding dress? And this is a big deal. If anybody's got the answer, I really desperately need your help. <laughs> Because a, a little smudge on a wedding dress, you know, gentlemen, this can ruin an entire wedding. You know, it could affect their marriage for decades to come. Smudge on the wedding dress. Folks, I don't have a smudge on my wedding dress. I'm covered with junk. There's not a white spot on my wedding dress. How are you going to clean that? I can't clean it. If the cleaners around here can't clean one little smudge, I'm telling you, I can't clean a crap on my wedding dress. It's impossible. So how's this going to happen? All I can say to you is God made a plan. He made a plan that's sufficient for me. And I know my sins are a lot better than I know yours. I can only guess what yours are. But I know how bad mine are. And He made a plan that's big enough for all my dirt and all my filth. There's no other plan. There's no possible way to clean that wedding dress up. No way. But He miraculously has done it. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, a great pain to Himself. He's thinking about me, and He's thinking about you, and He's thinking about your wedding dress and mine too. And what He did on that cross was clean that thing up. And we are going to have a happy wedding. And you are going to be pure. So am I. Not because I deserve it. Not because I earned it. Not because I've lived a pure life. But because Jesus did. And He imputes that to me completely. That is the amazing thing about being washed. And all those who have simply opened their hearts to Christ. Say, Christ, I know I can't clean my wedding dress. I know I can't clean up for this affair. I know it's far too filthy for me to enter. All those who simply say that to Him and then say to Him, Lord, I want You to clean me up. I trust You to do it. And I believe that what You did on the cross is powerful to do that. And I believe You're loving enough to do it even for a louse like me. I give my life to You to be Your bride cleaned up by You. That's what it is. Those are the people who are washed. And let me tell you what happens to people who are washed. They enter the gates of Jerusalem. They get in. And they are welcomed. And they see these bright and glorious beings before whom they are tempted to bow in worship. And they themselves are one of them. And they enjoy eternal felicity forever, ever, ever, and ever. That's what happens to those who are washed. Those who are not are duly warned. They are here called dogs. And you know, dogs, it sounds like a pretty rough word. It is a rough word. But it's a word that would mean a lot to a person with a Jewish background because, you know, the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. They were the ones who didn't have the morality of the Ten Commandments. They were the ones who didn't follow Jehovah. They were the ones who were involved in sexual immorality and the pagan temples and all the rest. They were moral and spiritual dogs. They were excluded. You don't let dogs into your city. You leave the wild dogs outside the city. You don't want the dogs. These, now, these are not like your pets, okay? These are wild dogs who just tear up anything, that are not domesticated, who will just destroy your stuff and you and your kids too. You keep them out, along with the hyenas, out of the, out of the city. And these are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, those who think that they're going to find spiritual power through some hocus-pocus, through worshiping some other gods, who are saying that their gods are better than your gods or their gods are equal to your god. All that stuff, people looking for spiritual life in other places, go ahead. They will look for spiritual life. Go look for spiritual life, he says. If that's what you want to do, that's what you will do. And I will do what I'm going to do, which is to judge the entire earth 
based on whether they are washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to be cleansed, the book of Revelation is teaching us. You don't have to believe that. That's what the Bible teaches, however. If you want to believe that God spoke through an angel, spoke through an apostle, gave us divine revelation, told us how to get to that beautiful heavenly place, this is the way you get there. There's only one way through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who pick another way, who fool around with magic arts, some other spiritual life, some other religion, they'll end up on the outside. I don't know any other way to say it. They will not be admitted because they're still wearing their cloaks that are not cleansed. The sexually immoral. We say sexual practice doesn't make a huge deal of difference just so long as I know Jesus. Now listen to me. Christian people sin sexually. I'm sure I sin sexually every week. I have these thoughts that go through my mind. Even in my own relations with my wife, I'm sure I'm selfish that I don't give to her as I ought. There are all kinds of sexual sins in Christian people. And Christian people make sometimes colossal moral mistakes. David made some colossal moral mistakes. But Christian people are the ones who acknowledge the will of God, who fully repent, and who have every determination to set their life on a new trajectory with the help that God allows through His Word, by His Spirit, and through the accountability of brothers who will help us. So if you have a weakness in this part of your life, if you're living a repentant life, you will bring in help to get you going in the direction. The right direction. doesn't mean you'll never foul up again, but you'll get going in the right direction and you'll be yoked together with brothers who are moving together toward Christ. Those who don't do that are those who have not received Christ. Because to receive Christ is to ask Him not only to give you the perfectly cleansed dress at the end of the day, but to begin to clean you up now. And you can't do that by yourself either. You have to do that through worshiping the Lord and trusting Him and asking Him and yoking together in the community of faith with men who have the same intention. And those who are murderers, those who are idolaters, murderers, what Jesus told us, are those who unrepentantly continue to hate people. If you cannot be reconciled with another person because of something in you, you're a murderer, spiritually. You're violating the Sixth Commandment. A Christian is one who doesn't cease to hate people. We're all tempted to hate people, and sometimes we fall. But a Christian person is the one who says, Lord, I know what the standard is, and I'm sorry I've grieved you. I want your help that I can live a holy life. This person has done terrible things against me. Look at the people to whom John is writing, people whose relatives have been killed because they're Christians. You think they're not tempted to hate? You think they're not tempted to be bitter and desire someone's destruction? Of course they are. But John says, those people are left on the outside. That's the reason that you must persevere and ask for God's help that you may lead a holy life. Not that you're perfect, but you're asking sincerely for His help. An idolater is one who worships another god. And then the lovers and practitioners of falsehood. These are the ones who are on the outside. Okay, moving quickly. And we will because this is, the, this is it. God the judge makes a final plea. He makes it through Christ. The Spirit and the church, He makes it to the thirsty without cost. What a beautiful description. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. That is, join the church and invite people to come. And then notice He switches it. He says, first of all, the Spirit and the church, the bride, are saying, come. Those who hear say, come. And then He says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Let him come and drink without cost. From the river of life. So whoever will may come. The only qualification you have to have is that you're thirsty. And the water is yours. All you have to do is ask. You're saying, I'm not sure I can do all this Christian stuff. All you have to do is ask. All your friends have to do is ask. All your children have to do is ask. Ask sincerely from the heart to have their thirst assuaged and He will give the rivers of life for eternity to them. That is pretty simple, gentlemen, at the book of Revelation. Then lastly, he gives the final sanctions. The final curse. Anybody who tampers with this story, anybody who takes something out of this glorious revelation of our future, anybody who tries to add to it and tell us that it's something different, all the curses that are in this book, and you've read a bunch of them, fall on that person. Gentlemen, this is scary business. There are many academic institutions many churches that are taking things out of this book and telling you there's a different future. Or they're telling you they don't know what the future is. How can anybody know? 
They've just emptied this book of its power. And all the curses fall. Be very careful with the Word of God. This is not just an academic exercise. It's the very Word of God. And lastly, he gives a final blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. What does grace do? It justifies us, adopts us, preserves us, equips us, and glorifies us. Isn't this a wonderful last word? All this scary stuff. The God who is the judge of the universe is going to bring things all to a final denouement, a final conclusion, and all are going to be judged. And then he says to his people, now listen, this is not meant to upset you. This is not meant just to rattle you. This is not meant to make you scared. Why? Because I love you. And I'm going to protect you even from myself. You know I'm scary. You know I'm the father of the universe. You know I have all this power. And if you weren't my son, you'd have reason to be afraid. But I'm telling you, there's something called grace that's going to protect you from me. So that all you're going to get from me, you're going to watch the fireworks. You're going to see how powerful I am. But you're not going to be hurt by it. Because by my grace, I've made you my own. So when you read the book of Revelation, you see a glorious future from a very powerful and holy God for all those who simply say, come Lord Jesus and be my God and be my Savior. That's the story. It took us 34 weeks, but it's a pretty good story, I think. <laughs> Let's give God a hand for his story. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious bridegroom who's coming soon to take your church to be with you. We worship you. We ask that you help us for we are but men and we are sinners and we need your help day by day to remind us that you've cleansed us by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you're cleansing us by the power of your spirit, that one day we shall be fully cleansed, fully happy, full of the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose presence we will live and whose presence we now seek in his precious name. Amen. Lord be with you.